One of the things that has been exciting is the truth that as a community, what is exciting is we share whose life? We share whose life? The life of Christ. So that means it, it's a community because we share the same life. And that same life is the life of Christ. Now that is an amazing truth. And John, the beloved apostle, would like to use that, you know, one of those foundational truths when he talks about community, loving God and loving the community of God's people. Today what we are going to look at is John trying to tell us, <clears throat> you know, there are many, many things which is seeking to grab the affections of our heart. And he is going to boil it down to two things. Either you can be head over heel in love with Jesus, whose life you share, or you can forget that is the life you share and you can fall in love with the world. But there is no middle ground. John is very, very clear that there is no gray area in this. Either you are in love with Jesus, Either he is your focus, he has taken, you know, he is he's captured your imaginations and affections. He is your all in all. And out of that fullness, maybe if I get a chance to talk about that, it is out of that fullness that we do all things and that we become all things. We were alluded to that this morning when Gio was talking about, you know, if there is anything to boast, any self-affirmation, any self-worth, it is to know that God, we know God. But I take it one step further and say, it is to know that God knows us. Ultimately, that is what, you know, what really matters, that God knows us. And that knowledge is what is knowing God in the life of a Christian. So what... So I'm going to look at 1 John chapter 2 and I will read from verse 12 on though I would like to focus on verses 15 to 17. <clears throat> I write to you dear children because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And he repeats it. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you. And you have overcome the world. And then he goes on to say, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him or her. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, and I prefer that to the lust of the flesh, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, which are subcategories, means he, John is trying to explain what the cravings of the sinful flesh or the sinful man is, 
One is the lust of his eyes or her eyes and uh, the pride of life of, you know, and the boasting of what he has and does come not from the Father but from the world. That is worldliness. We will look at that. The world and its desires pass away. But the man or woman who does the will of God lives forever. May God open his word to us this afternoon. Now, verses 12 to 14, it looks like a creedal statement or like a confession. You know, among the Anabaptists or in our traditions, we have lost some of the great things that the church had to offer over the ages. And one of the things we have lost is this confessions. One of, you know, like the, the creeds, we have lost it. We don't talk about the Heidelberg Confession or the Westminster Confession. Now these confessions, when the church recites it together, I believe in God the Father and, you know, it keeps going. There are so many confessions. But these confessions are beliefs and truths found in the scriptures put together for the church, for the community of God to recite, to sing, to read together, bringing to mind certain, you know, it reminds us of certain truths which are so dear to us. Here, what, you know, when we do that, what it reminds us is the faithfulness and constancy of God, that our God has not changed. These creeds come from almost like 3rd century or 1st century Christians. They used to say the same thing. They used to hold on to the same truths. And one of them, I, I would like to believe that these verses are a creedal statement or something like a confession which the church, when they came together, reminded themselves. And today we have the privilege of reading and hearing it together, telling us, that our God has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what is it that he wants his readers to remember? They, he wants them to remember who they are and what they have been given. Verse 12, it says, I write to you, dear children. And when he says, I write to you, dear children, he's not talking necessarily, and I would like to believe he's not talking about immature believers or mature believers. He's just you know, John's expression of little children is he is maybe 90 years old and he is the elder and he is talking to his spiritual children. And he is telling them, I write to you, dear children, what is it? That your sins have been forgiven. On whose account? On account of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say something else again, why I believe the expression, dear children, applies to the whole church. If you see in verse 12, verse 13, I, he repeats, I write to you, dear children, what is it? Because you have known the Father. So he is writing to the church in general, and he is saying, you ought to remember, what is it? You have known the Father, and that your sins are forgiven. Isn't that amazing? Our sins are forgiven. We know the Father, the God of the universe. We know Jesus Christ. 
It's a reminder of how you came into this community. And it is also a reminder of the continual forgiveness that is available when we slip and fall like we saw last time. When we mess up the sheet, the white sheet of paper, we come to him and give it to him. What does he do? He gives us another fresh sheet to start all over again. Verse 13, fathers that they have known the one who is from the beginning. The fathers, they have, they have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. He is indeed gracious. Verse 13, it talks about young men. Because you have overcome the evil one. It is not that they will overcome or they can overcome, but they have overcome. They have been transferred from death to life, from darkness to light. Christians have overcome not by means of their own moral achievement, but through the victory over the power of evil, won in Christ's death and resurrection. What John is doing is he's reminding them of who they are and what they have been given. And John is assuring his readers that they can be confident that they know God. You know why? There are at least two reasons why they can be confident that they know God. One is, our God is unchanging. Not only in his character, but in his promises, in what he says. And the next thing about this God is, he is knowable. How do we know God? You know, we know him through the love of Christ. Because when, when we experience the love of Christ, we know that we know God. Because God knows us. Having said that, what is he doing? He is preparing his readers for the warning that is to follow in verses 15 to 17. What basically he is saying is, if you have chosen the way of life, the way of forgiveness and knowledge of God, they must continue in their commitment to it. Now, nobody forced you into it, but you have freely chosen to follow Jesus. Now, if you have chosen to follow Jesus, then you better stay that course. Because there is only another way to, the, uh, the only other way to live, you know what John is saying? The only other way to live is to live with the love of the world. And that way is incompatible with the love of God. If you have chosen to love God, you cannot love the world. Now I'll have to define it. And I am trying to see how John would have looked at it. But the, the idea that John has in mind about worldliness in this episode goes far deeper than the idea of outlawing some behavior that non-Christians tolerate. You know, means most of the time in our community it is like this, you, sh you know, you shouldn't go to cinema like I grew up, you know, you shouldn't go for dance, you know, that's not Christian. You shouldn't uh, do this or you shouldn't do that. Uh, but we saw that in the last two Sundays and uh, in the Fridays that we had that it's not a list of do's and don'ts. What do they do when we focus on the do's and don'ts? If you remember, it robs us of our center point. It robs us 
of our vision. When the center point is lost, what happens? Everything gets blurred. But worldliness for John is far deeper than those do's and don'ts which we talk about. We are called to an active devotion to God that shapes all that we are and do. We are called to an active devotion to God that shapes all that we are and do. Barclay captures the essence of the passage when he entitles it, Rivals for the Human Heart. What it means is the world is not simply a passive entity, but a rival for the allegiance of every person. Don't ever get into the idea the world is something neutral. It is not something, you know, it has a life of its own. And it has a capacity to draw you away from the way that you have chosen to walk. Following Jesus Christ is an active, it's, it's, it's something which you have to actively practice. Intentionally decide to live for Christ. Otherwise there is an opposing attraction. What is it? The world. It is as potent. It will draw. It is always, you know, in the, in the earlier days when TVs came and, you know, uh, you know, someone said we brought the world into our living rooms and now it is in our bedrooms. The world is in our bedroom. Uh, I am not against TVs, but, you know, look at every... Every channel which bombards us is always telling us something about the world. It is drawing us to it. So what does verse 15 says? Do not love the world or anything in the world. Now this is in the present form of the imperative. Basically what it means is it's an ongoing action. What John is telling is you need to guard yourself for falling in love with the world. So when... John is saying, do not love the world or anything in the world. Basically, he is saying, you have the chance to fall in love with the world. It's an, it's, now, do not love the world is something which if you don't practice every moment and every day of your life, you may be caught off guard and suddenly you may realize that you have fallen in love with someone else. And that's the world. We have to be very intentional. We have to be careful. In the present context, what John is trying to mention is he is talking about the world in terms of worldly attitudes or values that are opposed to God. John here is speaking of a system that stands in opposition to God's rule. When, the, when John writes, do not love the world, he, in essence, calls people to make a choice for God's way of doing things and not for the world's way. What he is telling is, make a choice for doing things God's way. So this is a conditional sentence, which says, if you love the world, you do not love the Father. Isn't that what he says? Do not love the world or anything in it. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him or her. It's a conditional sentence. If it says, if you do this, this is it. If you love the world, you do not love God. There are no middle ground. 
There is no, one has to choose, there are no middle ground. Either one can choose the world or God, not both. The command do not love the world demands that we reject the ways of life which do not lead us to God or to practice the or the practice of truth, justice, righteousness, and love. Now, Charles Swindoll, uh, he, he has captured it in some way, what the world looks like. The world system is committed at least to at least four major objectives, and I want you to listen to it, which I can summarize in four words, fortune, fame, power, and pleasure. First and foremost, fortune or money. The world system is driven by money. It feeds on materialism. Even as I have a dear friend who is Jewish and uh, most of you know, we have been friends for more than 30 years now. We are closer than brothers. And he always, from the day one that I met him, he always told, he, I can't use the same expression, but he said, Money talks, everything else walks, you know. And he captured it so well in our world, even among believers. I keep hearing money is important. What we are talking is, we are talking about a world system. I'm not saying money is not important. But what I'm saying is, don't give your life for money. Did I mention this? I was talking to a Hindu friend of mine just two weeks back. And he was concerned that he doesn't have time for his family and other things. So I told him, you know, in Hinduism, it is a tragedy that there is a god of wealth. They call it Lakshmi. I said, you have a choice as a Hindu and you won't, don't necessarily have to feel bad. Whether you will serve this God of wealth or you will serve the God who is God. I didn't go to that, that side, but I wanted him to think. And I said, if you give your life to the God of wealth, that God of wealth is going to demand everything of you. It will demand your family. It will demand your children. It will even demand you. Just remember that. What are we... Forget about us. Maybe our lives are over. What are we taught, teaching our children? Why do we push them to study so hard? Is it for the love of knowledge? You know, as people might be thinking, why I'm so against education. No, I'm not. Education is different from schooling. Teachers will know that. Why do we push them to do well in school? You know why? Let's be honest. I want my son to do a professional course. You know why? Because I somehow have it in my mind that if he's a professional, there'll be a job which will give him some money and which will take care of him. Is that what I'm putting in my kid's head? Or am I going to tell him, son, enjoy God. Enjoy his people and God will take care of you. But am I saying you shouldn't do a professional course? Do it. If God is allowing you to be a doctor, be a doctor. 
If God is allowing you to be a teacher, be a teacher. But don't ever get into the illusion that those are the things which keeps you. And if you think those are the things which will sustain you, then that has become your God. That is worldliness. Second, fame. There is another word for popularity. Fame is the longing to be known. To be somebody in someone else's eyes. We will look at those things as it comes. Third, power. This is having influence, maintaining control over individuals or groups or companies or whatever. It is a desire to manipulate and maneuver others to do something for one's own benefit. Fourth, pleasure. At its basic level, pleasure has to do with fulfilling one's sensual desires. It's the same mindset that is behind the slogan. What is it? If it feels good, do it. If it feels good, do it. Everything is based on if you feel good, do it. Hey, if you're happy, I'm happy for you. You feel good? You know, Oh, yoga is doing wonderful things for you? Good for you. Go ahead, do it. Don't even stop to think what is behind the yoga that you're doing. If it makes you feel good, do it. And let me tell you, that is worldliness. You know, we have to be so careful. That's why John is reminding, you have to be intentional. You have to stop you know, sometime and just ask, what did I say? What is it that I just, what just went, what just slipped my mouth? You know, when you're interacting with unbelievers, when they talk to you and say, oh, this makes me happy. You know, I am guilty of that. I am guilty of that. That's why I can tell you this. We sometimes say, oh, good for you, you know. But it, we know it is not. It is living in sin. But we say, you are happy, it's good for you. No, just keep silent if you don't want to say anything. But don't say things which is not true. You know, in this world, believer's situation is one of tension. We are not of the world, because we are not under judgment. We have been forgiven, right? John has been telling that. We are not of the world because we are not under judgment. But we are still in the world, exposed and bombarded with its temptations, with the potential to pull one away from God and into sin. D.L. Moody once wrote like this, and he is, he's captured it. He's hit the nail on its head. He said, the church is full of people who want one eye for the world, and the other for the kingdom of God. And I see my life like that. The preacher is preaching to himself. One eye is on the world. One eye is on God. You know what happens? Therefore everything is blurred. There is no clarity in anything. One eye is long and the other is short. All is confusion. You know, in our community, how many of us are confused? What should we do? I'm waiting on the Lord for his will. 
Ask yourself, is it because one, one of your eyes is long and one is short? Maybe one of your eyes is on the world and one is on God? That's why you and I don't have the clarity that we are looking for? Is that it? Is it because we have lost sight of that center point, our Lord Jesus Christ? Is it because we have not fallen yet head over heel in love with him? When the Spirit of God is on us, the world looks empty. When you look at the glory of our Lord and Savior, the earth really looks empty, let me tell you, because there are moments by His grace which I have enjoyed. And I'm sure you all can testify. When you read the scriptures, there are certain moments when the Spirit just takes you. And then suddenly everything, all your problems, all the attractions of the world, suddenly it seems to lose its grip. And suddenly you are exported to a place of such intense joy and pleasure. Haven't you experienced it? You have. If you have been a Christian for some time, you have experienced it. Why have you lost it? Why have we lost it? That joy, that vibrancy, that, that joy of the Lord, which is our strength to take bold decisions, to risk. As someone said, what is that? If something is worth it, it's worth risking it, right? You don't risk for something which is not worth it. The world has very small hold on us and we begin to let go our hold of it and lay hold of things eternal. This is the church's need today. My friends, a Christian is not ruined by living in the world, but by the world living in him or her. The world doesn't ruin us. You know what ruins us? When the world gets into us. The Christian is not ruined by living in the world, but by the world living in us. Yes, the love of the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. James 4.4 4 says, You adulterous people, don't you know what that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Don't you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Verse 16, it starts, For all that is in the world, God and the world are absolute antithesis as a source of value. They stand over each other like darkness and light, truth and error. The cravings of the sinful man, the lust of the flesh, are desires that come from the flesh or human striving. This means desires that is shaped by the world, unaware and untouched by God. All those desires and plans that are shaped entirely by our impulses, and not by the Spirit of God. Had God given, had John given some examples relevant to us today, he, would, he surely would have included this culture's pervasive materialism, workaholic ethics, sexual laxity, and driving desire for success and prosperity. Any attitude or action that makes the individual and not God the center and measure of the universe smacks of worldliness. Worldliness is serving many gods, be they be personal whims, ambitions, or striving. 
any desire that comes from the flesh or human striving. You know, it means the desire that is shaped by the world, unaware of, untouched by God, all those desires and plans that are shaped entirely by our impulses and not by the Spirit of God. That is a craving of the sinful man. Ask yourself, your desires, your plans, has it been touched by God? Is it what God wants? You know the interesting thing? Because the Spirit of God indwells in us, the interesting thing is that most of the time, 99% of the time, you and I know what is the good and what is the will of God. The problem with us is that we don't want to do it. Because we don't trust Him. Many a time when people come to me and say, Jason, I do not know what's God's will for me, I have to stop and say, there are many things which God clearly states in his word. You know why most of the time why people ask that question? is because they know what is the will of God and now they want to confuse it a little further. They want to pull a few more people into the soup so that they can make it into a mix they know what is the will of God, but they want a few others. So they will go around asking, what is the will of God for my life? Will you pray for me? Will you do this for me? But I'll tell you, 99% of the time, you know the will of God, but you choose not to do it because it's going to cause you or put you in an uncomfortable position. Tell me if I am wrong. Tell me I am wrong because you don't have the spirit of God. If you have the spirit of God, you know exactly what God wants you to do. What you need to ask God is the courage to do it. Not to go around asking people, will you pray for God's will to be revealed in my life? It's a good thing. But don't. We looked at that on Friday, right? Consoling relationships. When people come to you and ask, hey, I want you to pray for God's will to be done in my life. What is the will that you're talking about? <laughs> Confront them. That would be brotherly love. That would be real care. Don't say, oh, I will pray for you. You know why we do that? Because we are in the same boat, right? God is telling us to do many things we are not doing. So we are encouraging the other person also not to do what God is telling them to do. And we are all playing the same game. We are all playing the same game, thinking the God in heaven is an idiot. He doesn't understand. He's blind and he's deaf. Isn't that the charge that God brings against his children, Israel? That they thought he doesn't hear, he doesn't see. I want you to listen to this. The radio personality, I always used to listen to him when I was in Manitoba. This, he was a Christian. You know Paul Harvey? <laughs> yes. The rest of the story? He tells the story of how an Eskimo kills or I shouldn't say Eskimo, an Inu, an Inuit, kills a wolf. The account is grisly, yet it offers fresh insight into the consuming, self-destructive nature of sin. Now, he is describing how an Inu catches a fox, an Arctic fox, okay? First, the Eskimo coats his knife's blade. They have real great knife, 
you know, we got a, a, one kind of knife from Alaska, but really sharp knives. What they do is they coat this, his knife's blade with animal blood and allows it to freeze. Then he adds another layer of blood and another until the blood is completely concealed by frozen blood. Next, the hunter fixes his knife in the ground with the blade up. All right? When a wolf follows his sensitive nose to the source of the scent and discovers the bait, what does a wolf do? Starts licking. Loves blood, right? He licks it, tasting the fresh, frozen blood. He begins to lick faster, more and more vigorously, lapping the blade until the keen edge is bare. Feverishly, now harder and harder, the wolf licks the blade in the Arctic night. So great becomes his craving for blood that the wolf does not notice the racious, sharp sting of the naked blade on its own tongue. Nor does he recognize the instant at which his insatiable thirst is being satisfied by his own warm blood. His carnivorous appetite just craves more until the dawn finds him dead in the snow. That's how they catch a wolf in Inu lands. And that is what the cravings of a sinful man can do to you and me. Be careful. You can't flirt with the world and not get burnt. You can't flirt with untruth and not get burnt. I tell this out of experience. I tell this as a broken person. I tell this because I have fallen several times and it is only God's grace which has lifted me up again. I tell this because I have been forgiven. There is hope for all of us. Don't fall victims to the craving of the sinful man. It will consume you. You cannot ride the tiger. One of these days you will end up in its stomach. It is the truth of the world. It is a fearful thing that people can be consumed by their own lust. Only God's grace keeps us from the wolf's fate. Lust of the eyes as desires that come from what the eye sees. Greed aroused by what one sees. The tendency to be captivated by outward visible splendor and show. I'm guilty of this, what I'm going to read. Home renovation. Home renovation is a national hobby. That is how Home Depot and Rona and all others survive. We do provide employment to a lot of people. It's a good thing. Home renovation is a national hobby. Homes have become showcases. Our eyes determine what is of value and beauty. Our eyes. It's the eye. Fashion industry. Cosmetic industry. The media. Fitness industry. Health food. You know, the fitness industry will say, now it's summer, so you should get what? Beach body, right? It's all the eye. I didn't want to use the other word. That is how they entice you to the gym. Fitness industry, health food, it promises you longevity and eternal life sometime. Not to forget the plastic surgeon. 
And least of all, don't forget the mortician who comes around and makes you look so that people passing by says, doesn't he look just like himself, dead in the coffin? All promising us that we will look good and feel good if we follow and do what they have to offer. Lust of the eye is love of beauty divorced for the love of goodness. Let me explain that to you. Love, lust of the eye, is love of beauty divorced from love of goodness. You know what it means? I'm attracted by a beautiful woman. But that attraction is just, you know, it's just, just for, the, for what it can serve me. Without any thought, what it will do to that person. There are so many relationships today in our society which is called no strings attached. Have you heard of that? One night stand? I hear it in my office. If you are out in the world, you will hear it too. Oh, I had a good time. No strings attached. One night stands and so many other relationships. I don't want to get it entangled. But at the same time, I have used the other person. That's good. That person used me and I used that person. There is no love for goodness. It is just love of beauty without the love for goodness. Without, you know, thinking about the other. That is the lust of the eyes. The third phrase is boasting of what one has and does. The vain glory of life. I love KJV for that. It gives some fa fabulous phrases. The pride spoken of is pride in possession, self-reliance, and self-sufficiency. Now, let me, let me be clear here. We all need possessions. And therefore, it cannot be wrong to want and take pleasure in what God has provided for our needs. We enjoy our home. It's a beautiful home God has given. Every time we enjoy it, we say, thank you, Lord. We have a beautiful aquarium, 60 gallons. And I sit in front of it and I just say, God, how gracious you are in providing for us for $100, which should have cost me $2,000. I enjoy the things that God has given. I have a shepherd, a German shepherd, a big beast. I love her when I'm doing my Bible study. She comes and curls up at my foot you know, near the small heater. She gives me such a great delight. I enjoy her. And I say, thank you for this gift. I enjoy the things that is given. But you know, so there is nothing wrong in having possessions. But when I begin to desire more than other people, to covet whatever I see, to boast of what I have, to claim that I am self-sufficient, then my desires have become perverse and sinful and I stand condemned. You know, heavyweight boxer, you know, I don't even know him, but I read this. Maybe some of you might know him. James Tillis. He is called the Quick, right? He worked out from Chicago in the early 80s. He still remembers his first day in the Windy City after his arrival from Tulsa. He was from Oklahoma. He was a cowboy, right? 
I got off the bus with two cardboard suitcases under my arms in downtown Chicago and stopped in front of the Sears Tower. Sears Tower. I put my suitcase down, suitcases down, and I looked up the tower and I said to myself, that is James, uh, the quick James Tillis, he said, I am going to conquer Chicago. And then he looked down. The suitcases were gone. Isn't that so true? Isn't that so true? It's humorous, but it doesn't it speak of our very lives? We are going to conquer the world, but the breath in our nostrils are gone. Isn't it so true? David Roper, he writes like this, and I want you to listen to it very carefully. Worldliness is the lust of the flesh, a passion for sensual satisfaction. The lust of the eyes, an inordinate desire for the finer things of life. And the pride of life is self-satisfaction in who we are, what we have, and what we have done. Worldliness then is a preoccupation with ease and affluence. Is a preoccupation with ease and affluence. Affluence. We want to be comfortable. It elevates or it brings it, you know, to a higher level, creature comfort, to the point of idolatry. Our comfort is more important than people. Our comfort is more important than the things of God. It elevates creature comfort to the point of idolatry. Large salaries and comfortable lifestyles become necessities of life. Worldliness is reading magazines about people who live hedonistic life. That is why I sometimes wonder, you know, all this movie magazine, how do they survive? Because we love to read them. And spend too much money on themselves and wanting to be like them. Hmm? Ask my daughter, she will tell you everything about the latest trend. But more importantly, worldliness is simply pride and selfishness in disguise. (coughs) Now, I want you to listen to this very carefully. We think of those big things, right? But I want to tell you what worldliness is. Listen to this very carefully. I know it's time is running out. It is being resentful when someone snubs us or patronizes us, or shows off. You know, somebody does something a little bit here and there. Somebody doesn't talk to us. We suddenly become resentful. That is worldliness. We like to think about the big things, right? But I want to bring it to the small things. The everyday things. When I resent you know, she didn't speak to me. She didn't, he was not very nice, return, didn't return my call. You know, he didn't speak nicely to me. He seems to be ignoring me. It causes resentfulness in us. Now, that is worldliness. It means smarting, or it means, you know, feeling hurt under every slight, challenging, every word spoken against us, cringing when, other, when someone else is preferred before us. Worldliness is harboring grudges, nursing grievances, 
wallowing in self-pity. These are the ways in which we are most like the world. Isn't that true? These are the ways in which we are most like the world. These characteristics does not come from the Father, but from the world. Verse 17, the world and its desires are passing away. The coming of the light has already signaled the beginning of a new era. Like if you read verse, <clears throat> you know, verse chapter, uh, chapter 2 and verse 8, yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. I love that verse because what it tells is the light of God has already come in the person of Jesus Christ. The darkness one of these days is going to disappear. The knowledge of the Lord is going to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. The world is already in a state of dissolution. It is passing away. It cannot sustain itself. I talk to economists who are, you know, some of my friends and I and they are also thinking in terms of how will the world go on like this for another five years. They talk in terms of there is capital and all of those things, but, you know, but look at the moral decay, the, how societies are just breaking down, wars all over the place, earthquakes, and means the economic downturn. I do not know how long the world will go, but we know one thing. What is it? The world and its desires are passing away. We got to realize that the world we live in is already in a process of dissolution. Judgment is already taking place. Men and women are blind if they do not realize what is going on before their very eyes. David Jackman had to say this. <coughs> a millionaire who may live for money can take nothing of it beyond the grave. A millionaire who lives for money can take nothing of it beyond the grave. The social climber will never be high enough up the ladder. You can climb the ladder and you can climb the ladder. You know where it will end? Finally, when you reach the top, you'll be facing God. And I assure you that. You can climb the mountain and right there on the top will be God to whom you will give an account. The social climber will never be high enough up the ladder. The good time girl ends up as a spent alcoholic. Now I want, to list, I want the young people to listen to this very carefully. Men and women. The workaholics. You will be made redundant one of these days. However hard you try, you can work from 7 in the morning to 7 in the morning next day. One of these days you will be redundant. Or you know what they will do? They will force you to retire early. They will force you to retire early because you're useless to them. They have sucked every drop of blood in you and they're going to let you go. Why leave? Why do you want to live for these things? Why do you want to spend a lifetime for these things? Which cannot last. We should remember the ultimate statistics and I want you to listen to this. Ultimate statistics. What is it? One out of one dies. One out of one dies. How then should we live? 
but the man or woman of God who does the will of God lives forever. Living by the will of God, doing God's will is doing what God has enabled us to do today. Most of us know what is God's will, as I said, but where we fail is in doing it. Doing God's will is the greatest achievement. That is what success is all about in God's kingdom. At the same time, I want to, be, I want to caution you here. We should be careful to hastily ascribe things to God as John Wesley puts it so beautifully, do not hastily ascribe things to God. Do not easily suppose dreams, voices, impressions, vision, or revelations to be from God. They may be from Him. They may be from nature. Or they may be from the devil. But we should also be careful not to sit back waiting for the will of God to come. We should be doing the things that God is telling us today. Francis of Assisi, was working in his garden one day, or hoeing his garden. And he was asked this question, what would you do if you suddenly learned that you were to die at sunset today? You know his reply? I would finish working my garden. I would finish working my garden. Would that be our lives? If someone was to come and tell you, you're dying this evening, would you be able to say that? Would I be able to say that? I'll finish the work that God has allowed me to do. Not scrambling to pick up the phone and call someone whom you have to, you know, say sorry. Are you going to wait? You know, some of the, some of the things that you need to settle with so you pick up, oh, I have just few more hours left, let me just do it. Or are you going to say, yes, I'll finish what I'm doing. I'm ready. One loves either God or the world. This is the theme that echoes throughout scripture. What is the first commandment? You shall have no other God before me. What did Joshua command the children of Israel? Choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Jesus warned no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And now the author of 1 John, like his master Jesus, reminds people that there can be only one allegiance. There can be only one person for your heart. One loyalty, which shapes all that we are and do. There is no way to play both ends against the middle. The command of this passage are to be heard both as an invitation to serve God and for those of us who have heard and responded to such an invitation. You know what it is? It's an exhortation to continue to make that response daily. So my prayer is that we'll make that response. As I often say, to love him supremely, to know him better each day, and to serve him faithfully.